This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and I'm so glad you're here. I have a guest host today who I'm about to introduce you to, but first, let's hear from one of our proud sponsors. Twenty twenty two is ending, which was a hard year for many, as they're trying to heal from the impact of the pandemic. And now we're welcoming twenty twenty three with more people than ever needing help with anxiety and depression. The most common problem I hear from those seeking therapy is how hard it is to find a therapist. BetterHelp solves those problems. After you make the first contact, their standard is to offer names of therapists to you in less than two days, and you can talk to them in a first session to see if it's a good fit. If so, you're on your way. But if not, rather than going through an awkward call or email, you simply let BetterHelp know, and they'll ask what it was you didn't like and find someone else for you. You can text, chat, or talk virtually. All of those avenues are open to you. I'm a therapist because I got good therapy. I know how much of a difference it can make. I reached out, and so can you. Here's BetterHelp's offer for self-work listeners. 10% off your first month of sessions if you use this link. BetterHelp.com slash self-work. There's never a better time than today to reach out and get help. BetterHelp.com slash self-work. We're in the last week of 2022, and I'm so excited that you're here. Today's a very special day because we have Lewis Howes in the house. I first met Lewis Howes when his producer asked me to be a guest on his incredible podcast, The School of Greatness. That was the year Perfectly Hidden Depression was published. Frankly, I was flabbergasted to be asked. Listen to their own description of who they have on their podcast. Lewis Howes is a New York Times bestselling author, two-times All-American athlete, keynote speaker, and entrepreneur. The School of Greatness shares inspiring interviews from the most successful people on the planet, world-renowned leaders in business, entertainment, sports, science, health, and literature, to inspire you to unlock your inner greatness and live your best life. Now, I'm certainly not one of the most successful people on the planet, so how did I get on this show? One of his producers loved the book and asked me on. And I'll tell you, it was a tremendous experience. But the funny thing, they were busy building a new studio for him. So our interview took place in Lewis's kitchen, sunlight streaming into his breakfast room in L.A. early in the morning. He didn't feel well, but I guess he knew I'd come all the way from Arkansas to be on, so he soldiered through. He was also kind enough to be on self-work himself, talking about his early sexual abuse as a child and how that had impacted him for years. For all of his success, when I reached out to see if he could be a guest host, fully expecting, mm, sorry, I'm too busy, I did get this message, but he also contacted one of his other producers who took over. That producer's name is Chris, and he offered to provide that very interview with Lewis from December of 2019. I was blown away. But it was Chris's words to me that were so meaningful. And I quote, I first want to say that your interview on the show was actually one that deeply impacted me and how I view mental health. So thank you for all the work you do in the world. Wasn't that great? But before we go on, let's hear from one more of our wonderful sponsors. 
When life gets busier with what can at times seem overwhelming, you want to have as many coping mechanisms at your fingertips as you can. For me, Ozark Mountain Medicine's CBD products are the best way I've found to soothe my own aching muscles. Instead of only one form of CBD, there are 16 varieties in OMM's products. Simply knowing I can reach for it gives me relief. What's most important is that it works. I've been told at least three times in my lifetime that I needed to be assessed for back surgery. And three times, I've kept walking, getting massage, and steadfastly using this product. You can take it orally in tincture form or a calming salve, which is what I prefer. That's also available. And there are other benefits of taking such a high-quality CBD, including immune support, increased relaxation, reduced anxiety, and improved sleep. So here's Ozark Mountain's fabulous offer for self-work listeners. All you have to do is use this promo link, ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash selfwork and you'll receive 10% off your order. I never suggest a product to you that I haven't used myself, and I reap this one's benefits each and every day. Again, that code is ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash selfwork. Sometimes the best solutions are right under your nose, so try a bit of Ozark Mountain Medicine CBD and see for yourself. So welcome back. You're going to hear the first half of my interview with Lewis. I'd studiously prepared for this interview, reading one of Lewis's own books, The Mask of Masculinity, feeling quite certain that we talk about masks since Perfectly Hidden Depression is all about that. But he quite candidly told me he hadn't read the book. What I didn't know was what a wild ride I was about to have. Listen in as I hang onto my seat and my brain and answer the questions that simply came to him. It was a lot of fun. Welcome everyone back to the School of Greatness podcast. Very excited. We have Dr. Margaret Rutherford in the house. Thank you so much You're for so being welcome. here. You're so welcome. I'm loving it. Excited about this. I started listening to your podcast, Self Work, and was really inspired by the way you deliver your message and your wisdom. You've got 25 years of experience as a uh, clinical psychologist, but also you were telling me before that you just have lots of life experience. I do. <laughs> so can you share? I'm not sure some of the people that know me would call me wise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I trust people who've never been through adversity. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't trust them with advice. Let's right. say like if right. you've had everything perfect, if you are, you know, everything you do is successful and there's no downside to anything and you don't go through any hardship. Yeah. You don't have the lessons to share. You can share stories from someone else's experience, but not your own. Right. So what are some of, just like a quick recap, the highlight reel or the blooper reel of your life that you would say that gives you experience and credibility with, you know, besides 25 years as a psycho? Uh, my dad so used to call me when he was alive and he'd say, Mara, how's your practice going? And I'd say, it, it's going pretty well, Dad. And he'd go, great. And he said, well, you know, you screwed up your own life so much, there's not very many problems you can't understand. Right? <laughs> and I'd say, you know you're right. In a nutshell, I had a decade that was just really chaotic. Mm-hmm. Um, I left college and, well, I didn't leave college. I graduated from college and then was bound but determined to be a professional musician. And I, I was a professional mm-hmm. musician. I was a jingle singer and, and then a jazz at night. I tried rock wow. and roll. I was terrible. Um, so I sang jazz at night and I had a, a successful career. I wasn't first tier, but I was second mm-hmm. tier. But that, that decade also included two failed marriages. It also included a, a bout with anorexia. Uh, my panic attacks started in my late 20s. 
primarily because of the stress of how I was living. And so I, looking back on it, I now understand that. And, but I had no idea that I would end up becoming a therapist. In fact, I went to school. I put all the money I had down in the world on, at SMU and started studying music therapy because mm-hmm. I had done some volunteering and thought, you know, this would be a, a nice marriage yeah. of my interest in helping others and then my, my love for oh. music. But the very last semester, my psychiatric internship was at a psych hospital. And I thought, oh, no, this is what I want to do. So I went back. I was not a psychology major in college. I was a French major. Mm. That has helped a lot. (laughs) So I got psychology hours. And one of my favorite stories is one of the secretaries in the program I got in, which was actually a very fine program, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. She told me, like my third year there, she motioned to me like this, and she said, you know you were let in out of curiosity. Mm. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? They said, who is this person sure. who is a singer who you know, fronts a big band at night and then wants to be a, a psychologist? Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's in about nine years, huh. I went from doing that to, to being a psychologist, seeing my first patient. Wow. So. I took those years of confusion. I had two marriages. And I took those years of a lot of confusion and a lot of just feeling lost and um, a a lot of the dangers of the music business for me. I had gone on and I... Alcohol and drugs were very much a part of all that, yeah. and so it was hard not to, not to stay away from that. And I just didn't like the person I was becoming. And so I switched and um, and kind of started rowing my boat in another direction. And it wasn't easy. And I doubted myself a lot. I had been in therapy. I'd gotten a lot of some bad therapy and some good therapy, mostly good therapy. And I realized if I'm going to 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 be a psychologist and to really believe in myself, I have to just fight through whatever doubt I have, whatever fear I have. Mm. I began talking openly about my panic. Mm. Which people didn't talk about probably 20 years ago, did they? No. No. In fact, we had a mandatory uh, group therapy among the first-year students. and mm-hmm. we, we had to go and meet with an outside therapist and talk about ourselves. Wow. And I chose that, that group to finally walk in. Now, we'd been together about eight weeks by that time. And people were opening up. They were being vulnerable. A little bit. Now, After were, eight weeks, they weren't opening up? Wow. No. And I walked in and I said... <clears throat> I have panic disorder, and one of my colleagues, who ended being one of my really good friends in the program, looked at me and she goes, so you've been lying to us. Wow. <laughs> yeah, my worst fear, that people would see it as deception on my part or that I was somehow, I'd been hiding something, speaking of perfectly in depression, I'd been hiding something from them and you know, masking and not telling the truth. And I looked at her and I said, I just was not ready to share. And I had to be ready in my, in my heart and soul mm, to share. Yeah. So we worked through that. But that was really the beginning of me thinking that I wanted to be the kind of psychologist and the kind of person, actually, mm. that, would, um, that would foster that kind of openness in other people. And, of course, yeah. this way before Brene Brown. Yeah. And then when we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, I got my training in Dallas, and then we moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and uh, Bill Clinton had just been voted in as president, and Maya Angelou was his poet laureate. Mm. And she's written a beautiful book called uh, Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now. <laughs> I was right out of graduate school, and I did not want to read a book. 
you know, I thought, I've got to read a book by Maya Angelou. She's incredible. So I went to the, the bookstore and said, what's the smallest book Maya Angelou yeah. has never You've read so much written. in nine years. I can't yet. read another book. And it was Wouldn't Take Nothing for My Journey Now. And there's a beautiful essay in that where she talks about that one week she had been named in New York the outstanding something of the, of the week. And everybody was very congratulatory and telling her what, how wonderful she was. And she got really drunk. And she stopped at this table of men and plopped herself down and somewhat with, a, I'm sure, a lot of slurring, said, what's wrong with me? Why does no man want to be with me? And mm-hmm. just made an ass out of herself, basically. I mean, out of her sense of not belonging yeah. and a real confusion and hurt. But she even, she says in the book, that was a time when you wish you could change your last name and move to Canada. So, wow. but I looked at that story, Lewis, and I thought, yes, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of vulnerability and openness that I want to help people find and create in themselves and create in myself. So over the next 25, 26, 27 years where I've been in practice in Fayetteville, I've tried to incorporate that. You know, I can't say that beginning as a beginning therapist, I didn't adopt the therapist stance. I'm sure Sure, I did. But I learned that was boring, 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 boring. So I brought more and more of myself into my work and not where I'm self-revelatory all the time. I, I don't talk about myself that much. But I try to find a way of getting at that place where people have the most shame mm-hmm. and where they're holding a lot of shame. And you get them to share their shame. Exactly. Because when we hold on to our shame, what happens? We continue our bad behavior. Mm. I thought shame for a long time. I grew up in a family where if you felt guilty for something, that was the worst punishment you could have. Mm-hmm. You know, that look of disappointment in your parents' eyes. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. <sighs> and so I thought shame was helpful. I thought it was the same as a good conscience. Mm-hmm. But then I had a supervisor in Dallas. His name was Robert Beavers. He was swanky, Texan, you know, boots and the whole bit. And I didn't like him actually very much, but I listened to him. And he said, shame is a helpful behavior if it lasts for 10 seconds and it leads to a change. Mm. And so I thought, okay, I didn't agree with him. But as I've learned through the years, you shame yourself for something. And instead of it being a, a motivation for you to stop doing something, you already then say, I'm a horrible person. I've, I've drug all this shame around. I've, I've got all these this. secrets. I'm I'm, I don't deserve anything. And so why not take another drink? Or why not gamble? Or why not have another affair? Or why not whatever it happens to be? I'm already me. a bad person. I'm already a bad person. I've already screwed everything mm. up. And so I'll keep one more secret, and I'll have one more shameful thing that I'm, I'm carrying around now. Someone said... Or multiple people have said, you're only as sick as your secrets. Yeah. Is it, is it the same thing? You're only as sick as your shame? I think that's apt. Because if we hold on to shame, more we, we continue to beat ourselves up. We don't right. believe we're worthy of something, love, or a career opportunity, or people liking us. Is that right? Or, right, right, right. It's, so it doesn't do good for the world if we hold on to shame. Exactly. And people will argue with me about this and have. Said you're 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 talking about not having any remorse or not feeling bad for what you did. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about holding on to it. I I feel remorse about the divorces. Mm. I hurt the 
the people I married, and they hurt me. But I don't feel good about that. I've, I've hurt people along the way. I don't just forget that and say, well, that didn't matter. I was young or right. there was some justification for that. You realize it matters, but you're not going to hold on to it to affect your happiness now. I'm trying to live in today rather yeah. than the past. Yeah. The past. Yeah. And so you can learn from it and then have it be motivation for you to try not to do it. But at the same time, if it governs your present and if you're missing out on being with someone in the moment, either your spouse or your children or whatever, because you can't let go of that. It's, it's a huge part of perfectly hidden depression. Mm-hmm. It's a huge part of being comfortable with vulnerability. What happens to us when we hold on to multiple things from the past? Oh, my god! Secrets, shame, upset, hurt, frustration, regret. What happens to our life in the present? You know, there's a quote. I, we, we were talking before the interview about an author named Terrence Reel who mm-hmm. wrote the book, I Don't Want to Talk About It, back in 1998. And I've quoted him because I love this quote. It's simple. He says, if you don't feel it, you live it. And what mm-hmm. he means by that is if you don't allow yourself to connect with something, be it anger, be it fear, be it shame, be it disappointment, you know, whatever, then you are going to live that out. And you may not recognize that you are, mm-hmm. but you're going to take that into your into your behavior today. And it may do it more covertly than overtly. I've had people as patients, both men and women actually, who've said, you mean that something that happened to me or I did or I said or was done to me back when I was eight or nine or 10 or three affects me now. I just, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I'm from Arkansas. People just kind of want to, you know, the facts are the facts. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'll say to them, yeah. And I'll start pointing out how there is a pattern mm-hmm. that you can trace in their behavior. And just, it's, they're just wide-eyed. And when it's shame that is part of that pattern, they go, you know, maybe or maybe not, If they may or may not cry, but there is a sense of recognition of, oh, I'm arguing with my wife because when she criticizes me, what I really hear is the voice of my stepfather. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I have to work until 8 o'clock at night because I have to be the best person at my job, I'm really hearing the voice mm-hmm. of my mother who said, you're never going to amount to anything. You're just dirt. Mm-hmm. You know, you are carrying that around with you. And it is, it is very much affecting your actions in, in the moment. Mm. And that's what, you, that's what you want to begin to undo to the best of your ability. Yeah. What would you say in the 25 years of work that you've been doing with intimate therapy sessions are the three or four common things you see, the common challenges or problems that people have with themselves or with the situation they're in? I'm assuming a lot of couples... But what's the common thing? Is it anxiety, stress? Is it shame? Is it what are they lacking? What are they needing? And what's the common theme that most people have? A challenge in relationship. Because you know, because I moved to a relatively small town, and I did my dissertation on pseudo seizures, which are seizures that Mm -hmm. don't have uh, abnormal EEG activity; they're more psychological in nature. But I would have starved to death if I had <laughs> moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and, and made my expertise in pseudo seizures. Sure, sure. Just not that many of them. 
So I've had a fairly general practice uh, where I've seen men and women and, and couples and for depression and anxiety and PTSD. I don't do learning disabilities. There's things I don't do. But when you say the common things, that's a really interesting question. I don't know if I've ever been asked it. That's why you're on the School of Greatness. <laughs> I think like that... The common traits, the, like why they all come in. Is there like one thing of the, of the core of why everyone comes in or yeah. need, is looking for answers or looking for support or a few things? I think that they are searching. I think they're searching. And some people want to come in because... They think a therapist is going to provide answers, and we don't provide answers. What we do is try to help the person see what they are feeling, but what they're not feeling, what they're saying, but what they're not saying. It's as if I'm going to hold up a mirror to mm-hmm. you. And from my own perspective, which is limited by me and my boundaries. And a 60-minute conversation and yeah, what they reveal. Yeah. yeah, but I think that most people, if they're depressed, they want... And, and they've tried to not be depressed. They're searching for what am I? What can I do? I don't like feeling this way. If they're anxious, they they're searching for a way to begin to manage that. You know, one of the things that I stress is with mental illness, with many mental illnesses, you have to manage them. You don't get rid of them. You manage them, uh, especially chronic mental illness. Now, if you have an acute mental illness where, let's say, you know, your mother died suddenly and you got very depressed, that probably has a beginning, a middle, and an end. However, you still have to live with the fact that your mother died. Mm-hmm. So you can have... Um, those emotions for the rest yes, of your life. Yes, yes. So it's, it's, there's some... I think what... You know, in graduate school, I was told that therapists are agents of change. And so I think if there's a common thread, and of course different therapists have different techniques of how they think that change is best created, but... When you want to be welcomed like family, choose Lowe's Hotels. Whether your visit is for work or for play, a weekend trip to the city or beach getaway, you can count on Lowe's Hotels to go above and beyond to make your vacation feel effortless. No matter the destination, your comfort is their priority so that from the moment you arrive, you feel at home. Lowe's Hotels will treat you like family and Lowe's loves families. From connecting rooms and complimentary cribs to pool toys and games, you'll create lasting family memories during your stay. And families include pets too. They even get their own room service menu. With Lowe's Hotels Chat Your Service offering, you can get anything you need right at your fingertips. Just chat your service via text message to the front desk. Whether you need a restaurant reservation or the AC turned up, more hangers or extra shampoo, they've got you covered. For reservations or more information about Lowe's Hotels, visit Lowe'sHotels.com. That's L-O-E-W-S Hotels.com. I think it is through connection. I think that it is through having a relationship with somebody that has your best interests, that really, truly cares about you, and that you can begin to let down these psychological defenses that you have and begin to look at your vulnerability, begin to look at things that you have not figured out before and that are, you used the term intimate a few minutes ago, 
that truly feel intimate in a in a safe way, in an mm-hmm. appropriate way, where you can display what perhaps you've never been able to um, in other relationships. Yeah, you know there is so much more abuse than people realize, and people are valiant. I mean, they come up with strategies. That's what perfectly hidden depression is all about. They come up with these strategies to handle whatever's happened to them. Um, you had certainly some experiences early on that mm-hmm. it took you quite a while to yeah. be able to say, I've got to look at this. Yeah. I myself was a spoiled, rotten child who was also kind of ill. Yeah. I had some neurological problems, and my mother was very, very smothering. Mm-hmm. And so I developed some behaviors that were, in my adulthood, pretty destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I think when you're searching and you're willing to be in a relationship with someone that is trying to help you discover those answers and you are trying to be open, uh, then whether or not it's depression or anxiety or PTSD or an eating disorder or whatever it is, you begin to figure out what's underneath what the problem looks like. What's underneath usually? A, a metaphor I often use is that, let, let's. I'll take me as an example again because I... I never said no. That's why, you know, that was a reaction from my mother. And I was very rebellious. I wouldn't let people help me. And so my rebellion and that part of me that I believed was strong and independent and I didn't need anybody because I'd get smothered if I needed it. I'd let anybody know that I needed them. And so you can think of a rock and you're, you're stepping on a rock every day, and I stepped on that independent rock every day, every day, and I loved it. That's my strategy. That's my strength. Well, guess what? If you turn that rock over, it's got little worms in there, and it's wet, mm. and it's kind of icky, and that's where that comes from. And I had to understand mm. how vulnerable I felt, some of my anger, some of my sense of being encroached upon and intruded upon and enmeshed with my mom. That, As an adult, I had a lot to do with allowing that as well. I'm not going to blame it on her. So I think you have to let yourself see both sides. Mm -hmm. You can count something as a strength, and it often is a strength, but the other, that you flip that coin over, and it is a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So therapy, I think, and what is trying to, a very long winded answer to your question is that people are searching for things that they don't see yet that are underneath the things they're doing that they like or that they're proud of or that they um, that they see happening and they don't quite understand what's the underpinning of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm helping people find the underpinnings of, of why they are who they are and, and how they make the choices they make. Yeah. It seems like everyone is talking about mental illness, anxiety, depression, stress, overwhelm, judgment, insecurities, body challenges. It seems like it's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. It's, it's what I feel like, right? That's, the, that's what it seems like. It's probably not happening everywhere. But it, what is mental illness? And, are we all, and do we all have some type of mental illness? I think we all have emotional and mental challenges. You cannot... You can't, because for one thing, there's the whole conscious unconscious thing, which is about there are things I'm aware of, mm-hmm. and then there are things that I'm not aware of 
that are provoking or causing my behavior. There's something going on in my unconscious right now and yours that is making you fold your hands and making me talk this certain way. And, you know, I'm aware of it, maybe. Would someone else who knows me well say, oh, yeah, you were worried about your bangs or, right. you, were, sure, <laughs> you know, sure. some, some silly stuff to, gosh, you just talked about your mother and that mm-hmm. would make her mad. And right. so, you know, we have things that are are affecting our behavior. So... I think that we all have some sort of mental and emotional issues. That said, they don't always get in the way of your functioning. Mm-hmm. You know, your life is really good. It's what you want and what you, you feel good about. You work hard at it. And so it really becomes illness when it starts painfully affecting your life. Now, again, how much do you realize that? Or how much do people who love you realize that? And so your own awareness and mindfulness of that um, must be, you know, sometimes mm. in question is in question. Mm-hmm. You bring up that mental illness seems to be the topic. Yeah, it is. If I hear another post about narcissism, I think, you know, narcissism is, narcissism is the diagnosis of the decade. Last decade was bipolar. How decade before that was borderline. Right? Yeah. yeah. So everybody's Everyone's narcissistic. Everyone's a narcissist. Everybody's a narcissist. If you think about yourself and yeah. care about yourself and you want something good for yourself <laughs> yeah. and you practice self-love, you're a narcissist. Yeah, right? exactly. So it's, you know, we have these kinds of favorite things and cultural things that everybody starts talking about. It's not bad for mental illness. I mean, I was delighted this week when I saw that 988 is coming out as, you know, you can now text that mm. and you can, or call it, and you, you'll get a mental illness counselor. Mm, that's so great. that's fantastic. That means that our culture is moving much toward an acceptance, you know, that depression and anxiety exist. There's some people in the, in the world that don't even believe it exists. They mm. think it's you're just feeling sorry for yourself. Get mm. over it. So, so what is mental illness then? What would be the definition of mental illness versus a mental challenge or struggle? Again, I think it's probably the extent to which it affects uh, your life or maybe the lives of others. Yeah, I think that it it causes, you know, there's one thing to be anxious, for example. I'm better talking about specifics. It's one thing to be anxious, and I'm a little anxious right now. I have panic disorder, so I also help myself a little bit. But if I was so anxious that I couldn't do this interview, that would be getting in the way of my life and what I wanted and the choices I wanted to make. Because I couldn't, I couldn't find my motivation to talk about the book as greater mm-hmm. than the anxiety I felt. Right, and there are right. many people who don't leave their homes because of that yeah. or have really very secluded, isolated lives. Yeah. So that, to me, is part of, part of the problem. Now, you add perfectionism into the picture, you know, I thought about the name, the name of your book and the School of Greatness, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if a perfectionist would actually see anything wrong with being great. Hmm. And probably not. And you want to be great. You want to be great at everything. And uh, the people you've had on and talked about the underbellies of being, you know, being perceived as great in our mm-hmm. culture— uh, might be tough for them. But the, the issue with perfectionism and, and this syndrome I talk about with perfectly hidden depression is really that they don't think it's affecting their lives. Perfectionism. Perfectionism. They believe it's one of their greatest strengths. Mm. Striving per, for perfection. Yes. 
and it's it's like their best friend. That's what that's just. It's the key that starts their car in the morning. It's what helps them um, believe in themselves. They think, and so. But what I what I found out when I started writing about it, and we can talk about that in a second, but is that they had no clue of the impact that it was having, the painful impact it was having on their actual vitality, mm-hmm. their actual fulfillment in life, because it's, they're on this um, treadmill constantly, uh, either of their own making or believing um, that, that others need to be perfect or what's called socially oriented perfectionism, mm-hmm. which is about trying to meet the expectations of others constantly. So are people that strive for perfection more likely to have panic attacks and more stressed out or more depressed than people that aren't striving for perfection? They would, the, the people I write about in this book would, would never tell you they're depressed. Right. They, they have success. They're happy. They have... In fact, they don't fit criteria for depression. Mm-hmm. If you look at the criteria for clinical depression, they don't fit it. And that's one of the dangerous things about it. Now, do they look anxious? To a certain extent, they will worry and be anxious, but they have a little bit of trouble with anybody knowing that they're that worried. Sure, because they want to look perfect then. Exactly. And so, but they can have anxiety disorders often co-occur with perfectionism because it just sort of goes with the flow. OCD and generalized mm-hmm. anxiety disorder, eating disorders, which are all about control. They're not really about food. Body dysfunction, yeah, yeah. So that's the problem with perfectionism, and it's sort of a... You know, it's, it's called a, a characteristic or a character trait. Perfectionism is a character trait. But it's a character trait when, it, again, not modulated well, can very unknowingly and stealthily, is that a word? Stealthily? That's a good word. Um, creep up on you to where there's more and more research now coming out that actually it is uh, a growing concern, uh, especially with the suicide rates. Increasing so what, What's the growing concern, the, the people with perfectionism or depression? Well, the growing concern is that, again, that perfectionists don't have mm. a warning signal that they are getting more depressed. Mm. No one is telling them, wow, you, you don't seem like yourself. No one is saying to them, uh, you know, I noticed that you're, when your mother-in-law got really sick, you didn't. You talked about that it was hard, but you didn't seem to really, you just kind of kept on going. And I know you love your mother-in-law. No, no one is saying to that because they're so good that, that they're so good at creating this facade or this persona of someone who's got it all together. Mm-hmm. And they count on that. They depend on that to, to function and it's their best friend. I, it's kind of like talking to an anorexic, and she says, or he says, um, I, I, I can't give up not restricting my eating. I mean, I know what restriction does. I know how it feels. I know exactly what my body does. I do it because it's my friend. It's my best friend. You're asking me to say goodbye to my best mm-hmm. friend. Perfectionism is very, very similar to that. Um, so... I have a lot of concern for these people because they are, as a group, um, just they're in denial. They discount whatever they suppress. Uh, they rigidly compartmentalize all psychological words. These 
traumas and memories and secrets that we were talking about at the very beginning that are literally weighing them down to the point where I asked many people who reached out to me why they had. And they said, because I don't want anybody else to live the life I've lived. I've come so close to mm. killing myself so often because it's the only way out. And that's why they're trying to be perfect? Or? No. They're, they have adopted... <laughs> There are a lot of roads to Rome, so to speak, where, mm. where adopting this perfectionistic strategy is important. Maybe you were, as we said a few minutes ago, screamed at, you're never going to amount to anything. Maybe you had to become a pseudo-adult in your family because your mother was alcoholic. Yeah. And maybe you were in very enmeshed and, and you were the, had to be the star of your family because and do everything extremely well because it pleased your mother so much mm. and she was so proud of you. May, well, whomever, whatever. Maybe you're male as you talk about in the, the masks of masculinity. So maybe you just grew up in a home where they said, you know, we don't talk about being angry. We don't talk about being afraid. Mm. You know, that's not acceptable. And you, well, that's being kind, or they're told to go to their room until they can be happy. Mm. Um, so these people have gotten messages that whatever is troubling them, that they need to, to shove in a box and put that box in a closet and leave it there. Well, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's not healthy. Your box, your closet gets too full. Yeah. And what people said was that why they are talking about it is because they fear that either they will end their lives or these people that are struggling with it will end their lives. And there's good research now to show that that's true. Yeah. Thank you for being here to listen in to these guest hosts. I'm doing well and I'm looking forward to being back with you. Enjoy the rest of 2022. And as always, thank you for being here. Take very good care of yourself, your home, your family, and those you love. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.